We have been studying the book of Ecclesiastes, written by this character who's called the teacher in the NIV, and we're going to continue with that now. We've got actually to um, a part of the book which is much more disjointed, as I'll explain later. We've uh, got verse 9 of Ecclesiastes chapter 6, last time we were looking at it a few weeks ago. Now, from now on until chapter 11, it becomes a, a much more of a hodgepodge of uh, uh, bits of advice, and uh, I hope we'll see why. For that reason, we're going to be surveying chapters 6 to 11 three times over the next, this week and the next uh, uh, two weeks to try to get a flavor of uh, three different themes that come out in it. I'll just uh, read to you a few verses to get us into our theme for this morning. Um, we've entitled the three sermons, Three Things We Don't Know. The first one is the future. Verse 10 of chapter 6. Whatever exists has already been named. What man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he. Verse 12. For who knows what is good? For a man in life, during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone? Then turn with me to chapter 11. There'll be a lot of page flicking through just these three pages as, uh, as we go through today. First verse of chapter 11. Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again. Give portions to seven, yes to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. If clouds are full of water, they pour, they pour rain upon the earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and evening let not your hands be idle. For you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. well I think we need God's help to help us understand, don't we? Let's ask him in prayer. Lord, there are times when your word is very simple, very clear, and we can understand it with ease. We confess there are times when uh, we need to work at understanding your word, Lord. But we know that sometimes when we have struggled the hardest and we've uh, sought your help with the uh, the greatest sense of need. Those are the times when you've blessed us the most. So we pray, Lord, as we do try to understand this ancient word, that you will come upon us and among us. That you will help us to see your world with more clarity, more realism, and therefore to live more as the people you've called us to live, to be. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Some of you will know my childhood was spent in Devon, near Dartmoor, actually. Dartmoor is a wonderful, wild place. In the summer months, if the, uh, the family farm was not too busy, we would head off on a Sunday to go and walk on the moor. And most years, we would make sure that one of the visits was to a, a deep, wooded uh, uh, ravine called Lidford Gorge. At the head of the gorge, there is a, is a natural granite bowl, which is called the Devil's Cauldron. The river uh, in that valley flows into that bowl, and then it swirls violently around and fight before it finally squeezes out through a very uh, narrow opening uh, at the bottom of the bowl and down the valley. You get to the uh, Devil's Cauldron by inching along a narrow, rocky ledge which was cut in the uh, granite by the Victorians. You enter the bowl about halfway up so that there's a, a rock curving over your head and then it curves on down to the water churning violently below you. And then, as you enter the bowl, you see that, uh, or at least it used to be there, I haven't been back the last few years, uh, there's a plank that has one end bolted to uh, the ledge, but the other end is suspended by two chains from the top of the bowl, right over the middle of the water. I don't remember anything else. I think there were a couple of wires down the side. But there was uh, very, very little in terms of safety. If the river is high, we always used to try to go in the spring or, or, or the autumn. If the river is high, the noise in that granite bowl is absolutely de deafening. The mist and the, the spray rises up around that plank. And one by one, we children used to grasp hold of our father's hand and walk to the end of the plank and look down. It's truly terrifying. Even to speak to my father, you had to shout. Below us the water boiled and roared and smoked as if you were looking into hell itself. No wonder they call it the devil's cauldron. And then after we'd uh, had that terrifying experience, for the rest of the day we would just wander down the valley past exactly the same water. But this time, it was flowing into quiet pools. On a hot day, we could go and paddle, even uh, swim in the water. That water, which was flowing past us, so quietly now, who would have believed that it had been recently bubbling and churning and pulverizing the devil's cauldron? Well, you know, for generations, people... Uh, believed that life was basically like that gentle flowing river. Steady, predictable, quiet. Perhaps there were a few rapids, perhaps there were a few swirling eddies, but uh, the overwhelming view that people had of life is that it is manageable, predictable, and flowing positively in a good direction. You may need to do a little bit of paddling, a little bit of steering, as we launch out onto uh, that river, but that, that's all. Basically, if we just learn a few skills of navigation, we were told, we can uh, flow happily down the river of life, 
part of that great uh, ever-progressing positive flow of history. And there was lots and lots of, of things to support that. Marvelous technological advances of the Industrial Revolution. There were the, the amazing uh, improvements in uh, uh, life expectancy in the 19th and 20th centuries, the, the, the fantastic developments of sciences. Lots and lots of things were telling us that life is like the quiet river. The setbacks over that uh, period, and there were many, were widely believed to be no more than little eddies in the uh, flow of the stream. In fact, people were prepared to devote their lives to that confidence. Hundreds of thousands of people died in the First World War under the, uh, the banner of, the fa of believing that it was the war to end wars. Even in the 1950s, as Britain recovered from the Second World War, people were encouraged uh, to, to, to uh, work on eagerly by Macmillan's slogan, you've never had it so good. Harold Wilson, even in 1963, could stir us up with this confident idea of progress when he spoke of Britain, the future of Britain being forged in the white heat of the technological revolution. But then... And actually, over my lifetime, we have substantially lost that confidence. We're just not convinced anymore as a society that life is steadily moving in a positive direction. More and more people, as they look at this world, especially young people, they don't see a gently flowing river. They see the terrifying forces of the devil's cauldron. Now, I can tell you from experience, if you're looking down on that, you don't feel like uh, jumping in and going with the flow. You're obsessed much more about keeping your balance and hanging on. And the politicians today know that. The politicians know that they can't encourage us by great visions of the future. No, uh, the, the political slogans these days are about Britain at ease with itself, poised and balanced on the plank. Even cool Britannia. Because frankly, we have lost confidence in where our nation, the world, is going. Actually, uh, if you put it into biblical terms, we have moved as a society from being dominated by the book of Proverbs to being dominated by this book, Ecclesiastes. You see, Proverbs, which is just the previous book, the one before Ecclesiastes, works on the fundamental assumption that God has made this world orderly and purposeful as, and, and just. There may be eddies in the river, there may be a few rapids, but if you can learn to paddle successfully, you will be okay. And of course, there is an enormous amount of truth in that. But you see, if we only read Proverbs, we become overconfident, we become smug, as I'm afraid our society did in the past. We start believing that, what, 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 that uh, just a bit of wisdom will inevitably lead us on to progress. And the reaction that we're seeing amongst younger people now is precisely the reaction that this writer of the book of Ecclesiastes has. 
Ecclesiastes, you see, is the antidote to to Proverbs. The, The teacher in Ecclesiastes says the world doesn't work like that. You are far too confident in the uh, orderliness of this world, if you think that. It's an intensely emotional, almost violent reaction to that, that smug view that says this world is manageable. If you've been with us, you'll see that the first half of Ecclesiastes, this, uh, this man um, searches with, with, with ever-increasing desperation for meaning and purpose and consistency in this world. And every time, as he thought, perhaps at last, he was flowing along a peaceful bit of river, then when he saw the turbulence coming in the future, he hoped for a minute, perhaps it was just the rapids as he moved forward. Suddenly he realized, no, it wasn't. It was the devil's cauldron, which would swirl him around and drown him. Meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless in this world, he said. Life is a devil's cauldron. Life is a swirling mass of contradictions. We have no power over its demonic force, he said. But we have to live in this confusing world. We have to find some way of keeping our heads above the water. The second half of Ecclesiastes is about survival. If you read through it, you you will find that it is, frankly, a confusing mishmash of the disconnected and sometimes contradictory sayings. As I I prepared to, to preach through this book, for a long time I couldn't make head nor tail of chapter 6 to 11. And then I realized something. I realized that it's very disconnectedness is part of the message. See, if life is a swirling whirlpool of unpredictable currents, then learning to survive in that is going to involve chopping and changing and ducking and diving, sometimes doing contradictory things. Because the world does contradict itself. But running through these three chapters, there are three things that we are going to explore over these uh, three weeks. Three things that that, uh, the teacher says we just can't see, we just can't know. This is the distillation of his conclusions as he searched for meaning. The first thing he says we can't see is the future. Second thing we can't see is true justice. Injustices happen in this world. A third thing we can't see, he says, is the way the world works. We just do not understand why things happen. So in this second half of Ecclesiastes, that's what we're going to to look at. Three things we can't see. Just uh, for a while this morning, we're going to uh, look at the first one. We're going to see what he tells us about how to survive when you can't see the future. And uh, to uh, set the scene, we first of all need to uh, see the problem that uh, he sets out 
He has already done it in the first half and he does it again and again in the second half of the book. Let me just pick you a few verses to try to get you a flavor of it. First of all, he says in chapter 6, verse 10, reiterating what he said right at the beginning in chapter 1, he says, effectively, the world moves in futile cycles. Do you remember him saying that back in chapter 1? Here it is again in 6, verse 10. Whatever exists has already been named. What a man is has been known. No man can, no man can contend with one who is stronger than he. Life moves in cycles. There's nothing new that happens under the sun, he said. And those cycles are far, far stronger than us. No man can contend with them. As the poet Steve Turner said, history repeats itself. Has to. Nobody listens. And after our death, says uh, the the teacher, uh, life will close over our heads like water over a sinking stone. And those ripples that go out from it, well, who knows how long they'll last. Verse 12. Who knows what is good for a man in life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow. And who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone? He comes back to the same theme again in chapter 8. Turn with me to uh, chapter 8, verses 6 to 8. Here, he's echoing something we learned in chapter 3. Do you remember it? Life has its natural rhythms. Verse 6, there is a proper time and procedure for every matter, he says, though a man's misery weighs heavily upon him. Perhaps for a moment we could think that we could manage this world if we understood its rhythms. But no, he says, we only end up miserable. Life and death, he says, are actually in the end as unpredictable as the wind. Verse 7, since no man knows the future, who can tell him what is to come? No man has power over the wind to contain it, so no one has power over the day of his death. Then uh, in chapter 9, verse 11, he says uh, hard work and study are not actually going to achieve anything reliable for us in the future. No matter what the parents of thousands of school children might say, verse 11, I have seen something else under the sun. The race is not to the swift or the battle to the strong. Nor does food come to the wise, or wealth to the brilliant, or favour to the learned. But time and chance happen to them all. Actually, my, my, my children are, have been taught repeatedly in school, it seems to me. The race is not to the, not to the swift. They, they get um, the story of the hare and the tortoise repeated to them all the time. It's a story which humbles the brilliant, smart ones who do everything very easily. Because remember the hare in that race, races off to start with, but then decides he's doing so well he'll settle down under a tree. It's a story which encourages the slow plodders because that tortoise just keeps going and of course crosses the line before the hare. 
So uh, say the teachers, if the steady tortoises of this world just keep going, you will win, children. Rubbish, says the teacher. Oh yes, the race is not always to the swift. That's certainly true. But what the story of the hare and the tortoise doesn't have is the tornado that rips through the racetrack every day, completely unpredictably. The perfectly hidden heffalump traps in the track. The invisible tripwires. On one day, the tortoise may be tripped up on another the hare. And who can tell? Time and chance happen to everyone. And we just don't know who is going to win the race. Life is full of snares, verse 12. No man knows when his hour will come. As fish are caught in a cruel net, as birds are taken in a snare, so men are trapped by evil times that fall unexpectedly upon them. Imagine teaching the children that in Sunday school. But that's the view of life which is increasingly dominating our society, especially amongst young people. They see the random things that happen in this world. They are not convinced that the world is getting any better. And many of us here may be tempted to say, what's wrong with the youth of today? Why are they so pessimistic? When I was young, I was an idealist. Remember one teenager saying to his mum, cheer up, mum. It's not that uh, um, uh, you should be disappointed that you've lost your ideals of the 60s. You should actually be uh, happy that you've discovered those ideals were empty anyway. Chapter 7, verse 10. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? It's not wise to ask such questions. It's not. Maybe actually the youngsters who are determinedly pessimistic so often are the wise ones. We just don't know the future. Very important for us to understand that. That's the... That's the backdrop that uh, this teacher has been trying to teach us again and again. The future is unpredictable. Accidents happen. But then he uh, moves on from reasserting this uh, uh, problem to starting to explore the beginnings of an answer in the second half of uh, Ecclesiastes. The first element of the answer is this. Trust God and go with the flow. Chapter 7, verse 14. Page 673. When times are good, be happy. When times are bad, consider. God has made the one as well as the other. Therefore, a man cannot discover anything about his future. Now, actually, on several occasions in the first half of the book, the, the, the teacher has advised us to be happy in the midst of all life's confusion. But if you were here, you'll, you'll remember how at the end 
of each of those cycles, he always concluded that even just enjoying the, the moment for what it is was as meaningless as anything else. But now, in the second half of the book, it's almost as if his pessimism, his skepticism, cannot be sustained. See, he's looked at the world under the sun, and he has uh, embraced its, its darkest thoughts. But somehow, he cannot lose that sense that God is good. It seems hardwired into him that God is actually, through good events and bad events, trying to teach him something good. Very interesting how people cannot actually sustain total pessimism about God. He's saying, life may be inscrutable and meaningless. But in the end, he says, I believe in a good God. In the end, I believe that even when bad things happen to me, he says, there are lessons that God wants to teach me. When times are bad, consider. In uh, his uh, confession, St. Augustine describes how long before he was a Christian, his best friend died, and he was overwhelmed with grief. But he describes how years later he started to think through that pain. Why had it hurt so much, he says? Surely because I had poured my affection into a bed of sand by loving a man who was to die as if he'd been immortal. What I have later learned, however, is even more important that the happy man is the one who loves you, who are immortal and unchangeable. As Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 2 says, it's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of every man. The living should take this to heart. There are things to learn when bad things happen to us. When times are good, he says, be happy. Enjoy the fact that God, the good God, has brought you good things into your life. Rejoice in them. But he says, God is even good when bad things happen to you. He is working on teaching you important lessons. The second lesson, second beginning of an answer that he starts to sketch out in the second half of Ecclesiastes becomes clear at the end of this section. Not only should we trust God and therefore be prepared to go with the flow of what happens in life, we should trust the future and refuse to bow to chaos. Chapter 11, verse 1 on 676. 
Cast your bread upon the waters, for after many days you will find it again, he says. The human spirit cannot, cannot uh, cope with, cannot survive believing that God is not good. We just are incapable of it. Similarly, the human spirit cannot stop believing that in the, in the end there is some purpose beyond the chaos we see. Trust in the future bubbles up in us. You only need to see that amongst teenagers. Sometimes the most pessimistic teenagers are the ones who are the most devoted to stopping animal cruelty or to saving the environment. They cannot sustain this, this negative view of the world. So says the teacher, we were made to trust that beyond the chaos there is some good purpose. Cast your bread upon the waters. Some people think, it, think he, he means invest in uncertain projects. Other people think he means be liberal with your charitable giving. What, it, what, what precisely he means doesn't matter. It may be one or other or both of those things. His point is, 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 is invest your life in things that you have no control over. And you will find, he says, that that investment is returned. It's amazing, isn't it, after he's been um, saying how meaningless and futile and confusing this world is. But uh, in the end, he is confident that we will reap benefits. After many days you will find it again. In fact, he says, the uncertainties of life should make us more active, more liberal in our enthusiasm for people and projects in this uncertain world. Verse 2, give portions to seven, yes, to eight, for you do not know what disaster may come upon the land. Spread your liberality widely, then some things may be successful, he's saying. More than that, there are things which are predictable in this world. Verse 3, if clouds are full of water, they will pour rain on the earth. Life develops in that way. Understand it. Recognize too, he says, that the moment can so easily pass and when it is gone, there's nothing you can do about it. The second half of verse 3, whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there will it lie. You can miss opportunities. So, says the teacher, don't be paralyzed by all the potential disasters that may come. Verse 4. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. If you're watching the wind, you might uh, be worried that uh, the light seed that you're sowing will be blown away. The wind can blow up at any moment. And it can die down at any moment. Take a risk, he says. For watching the rain clouds will never actually uh, cut down the grass for hay. We'll never harvest the crop. Because it's always possible that rain will come. Take a risk, he says. 
Get out there, he says, and live life with guts. Verse 6, sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let not your hands be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that, or whether both will do equally well. Here is the glorious, liberating message of the book of Ecclesiastes, you see? If we try to live life as if it was totally manageable, if we have a life plan, if we have a career in mind, if we think that we can only manage life, if we've got every step of the way planned, we will live our lives totally disappointed and pessimistic because life is not like that. But you see, if we've stood over the swirling, turbulent currents of history, if we have accepted that anything can be plucked from us at a moment, that you just cannot tell the future. And actually, he says, your faith in God has an opportunity to flourish. And you can go out there and live life recklessly, wildly, to the full some of the good things that you do for God will bear fruit. Cast your bread upon the waters. After many days, you will find it again. Very often we Christians don't actually dare look at the hard realities of the real world. Very often we, we, we Christians try to say, well, life is a totally orderly, simple place. If you just do good, then God will bless you and all will be well. And that is always a recipe for waning, declining, frustrated faith. Because life always proves us different. What Ecclesiastes does is he says, look at reality. Okay, there may be truth in Proverbs. But before you embrace the truth of the Proverbs, look at the disconcerting realities in this world. Look at the uncertainty of the future. And then with reality in your mind. Come back and ask yourself, do I believe in a good God? Do I believe actually in a God who though he brings good and evil into my life, only wants good to come out of it? Though he brings deep confusion into my life and frustration and disappointment, he will keep account and there will be a harvest to reap. We can think through to the point where the teacher has got we will have a faith that can face the real world. And we know more than the teacher. Because, uh, as Peter Lieber was um, 
reminding us as he led the service, we have the final answer so clearly shown to us in the New Testament. The New Testament says there is not an activity, not a thing that we do, not a thought that we think, which is not taken into account by God, counted by him, and will not influence eternity. Because Jesus will come again. There will be a new heaven and a new earth. There will be an eternity for those who love God where they can delight in the harvest of their lives. So where will you be in a year's time? You may think you know. But I can tell you, you don't. Just today, a friend of mine, uh, or yesterday actually, a friend of mine called me and told me that um, he's been made redundant because his his company's gone bankrupt. Just a few weeks ago, an acquaintance of ours... um, was speaking to us and told us that his cancer has come back and he's been told it's inoperable. We have a a friend who devoted the best years of her life to raising her son. He's now a criminal and a drug addict. Just don't know what the future holds. Where will you be in 10 years' time? 20 years' time? Where will you be in 100 years' time? Because amazingly, you see, the longer the time scale, the more certain we can be. In a hundred years' time, there are only two possible places we could be. In heaven, for our glorious Father, or in hell, eternally separated from him. And in an extraordinary way, the Bible says, Though at the moment the world may be a cauldron, a devil's cauldron, of currents threatening to throw us in all different directions, in the long run there is absolute certainty. God will not be mocked. And he says as we stand on the planket looking over those waters, he says, throw yourself in and God will keep you alive and above the water just as long as he wants you to. You can't say how long that will be. But what you can say is that there is nothing more satisfying than knowing we're living for God. And there's nothing more certain 
and knowing where we are after death. Let's pray. Perhaps for you personally, you, you can't bear the thought of not knowing what's around the corner. Living with that uncertainty. Perhaps, perhaps you need to bring that before the Lord. Perhaps your desire to control the future has stopped you actually going out on a limb for God. Being prepared to, to live your life recklessly for God. Perhaps he's calling you to do something which doesn't make much sense. Yet, which you know you should do. Oh God, our Heavenly Father, we sang earlier, Christ is surely coming. We pray that that reality, that truth, would be for each one of us the most important thing which empowers our lives. Help us to live for eternity, we pray. Not banking on anything in the short term. Trusting in you. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.